Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Good evening. Good to see you guys. We are continuing on in our uh, study of the uh, Westminster uh, Confession and the uh, our Congregational Confession that we have, and uh, we went through the first five sections of Providence last week, which is actually chapter six, and as we move into number six, it's going to be dealing with how uh, God deals with the unbeliever and uh, his hardening, and uh, also how he uh, also softens others, but... um, as he hardens, we see that man hardens himself too, and we'll uh, we'll be looking at that. So far, I think we still have people hanging in with us on this, right? Are we are we doing okay? We anyway, as we go through here, there are some uh, pretty heavy, deep doctrine, and that's really what it's about. And it's Reformed theology, as you look at uh, at the. Uh, early confessions, uh, most of them were reformed, that's for sure. And uh, so anyway, as we uh, get ready to look at God's providence, and then we'll move into chapter 6, um, the fall of man, sin, and punishment. Uh, actually, I guess it's chapter 5 and then chapter 6. Um, we'll try to cover at least a, a chapter and a, and a half here tonight on that. We'll just see how far we get. Um, let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. You certainly are a God who is worthy to be praised and worshipped constantly. Thank you for putting it on us that we would desire to worship you and desire to know you, for it is only by your grace does that happen. And as we gather around, Lord, uh, we want to know you a little bit more. And uh, as we look through various scriptures We see how you, in your almighty, great plan, brings about what you decree. And so, may we expand in our thinking and be able to uh, know you. And also, as a result of that, to have our actions line up with what your will is. We pray for your Holy Spirit to lead us into your truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, as we go into that sixth one, I actually, I don't have uh, an outline exactly like yours. And I kind of take, I revise a little bit, but this is, I'm going to put this back. There. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, right. it but this is really a kind of an adaptation, and it's mainly an outline from John Gerstner, who... Um, I thought did a very good job on the uh, Westminster Confession when he taught that back in the 90s, I believe. Back in the 90s. <laughs> 90s didn't seem that far off, but uh, we're talking 20 years ago plus. And to some here, that's like, were you even born? We're <laughs> close to it. Uh, anyway, I know Shasta's age, and, and, and I know that that was, she just had a birthday, Friday. I think it was 26. I can say that now. You know, you you get four or five more years, you probably would really probably get mad at me. Hopefully, hopefully you're not mad at me right now. 
It's okay, Dennis. We tell everybody how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's 32, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I like that or not. I know it's like it's that much further to go. To go back. <laughs> anyway, um, on that on that first one that we're at, which is actually our chapter five in the confession. Hello, good to see you. We just we're just starting. We're just starting. Um, it, and that's a whole chapter. Point number one is it, it's it's chapter um, chapter five, and we went through God is sovereign, and we also saw that He is the first cause of everything. Obviously. But there are ways that he uses and he operates through creation and he creates, operates through providence. And because of that, he uh, works through people. He has means that he uses to get to his first cause. So there's secondary uh, means. There's ordinary means that uh, can be. But also there are miracles where he just intervenes and stop something or start something. Um, so in his providence are uh, miraculous events, but most of the time he uses a series of events, which to me is even more miraculous than a single miracle can ever be. Um, God ordains everything. He even ordains sin. And then it says also that he never authors it, though. And he never tempts anyone. We know that. God sometimes allows sin in our lives to reveal our corruption to us. It humbles us, drives us into a deeper dependence on him. So he can take sin and he can use it. And he does. And that's where we're at now this week where he uses the means of grace to soften some. And also in his plan, he hardens some hearts. A lot of hearts are hardened. Uh, and we'll go into um, some of the scripture dealing with where that occurs. And then also in this one chapter, there's like two sections uh, that we'll be dealing with tonight. And God exercises special care and concern for his church as he works in providence. So providence is our key word for now, which is where we were at last week. We didn't finish. Finish up on those two points and then go into chapter 6 of the fall of man. Uh, sin and the punishment. So, why don't we read this sixth section of this chapter. I hope it is, is it large enough? Way back there? You can see? Okay. Let's just do it together as we have been doing. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge blinds and hardens for former sin, from them he not only withholds his grace by which they might have been enlightened in their understanding and affected in their hearts, but sometimes he also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to certain objects which their corrupt state will make the occasion of sin. God gives them over to their own lust, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, so that eventually they harden themselves under the same influences which God uses for the softening of others. That's deep stuff. That's rather deep, and this is just a, 
Westminster Confession, and it's summarizing, taking scripture and then putting it together in a paragraph or two. And it says a lot. And so you can see why these men of God, when they got together, in just a few words are able to get out what we would believe on this subject. Uh, if, you, if you read this to an average person today, especially an unbeliever, they would really have difficulty with that. Uh, but even believers would have difficulty with this. So we, um, I think we have to look at Scripture. Uh, that's our ultimate authority. That is our authority anyway, our only authority. This just helps us summarizes, uh, summarize our, our beliefs also. Let's look in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 28. We can probably go all over Romans tonight, and we will be using several different chapters of Romans to uh, help explain what these men were saying when they wrote this. Romans 1, 24, and this is where God hardens the unbeliever. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, burning their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And, of course, then you get a whole list of sins they were involved with and shows their nature. But the key phrase is, that he gave them over to a depraved mind. Verse 24, he gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's, uh, sorry, that's, oh, not yeah. a, that's not a passive verb, right? <laughs> <There's> no, <laughs> uh, I was just wondering, so like in 28 it says, God in my version it says, God delivered them over to a worthless mind. Yeah. We are, sorry. Hey, my voice sounds a lot better than I thought it did. <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> that was good. Um, how privileged we are, though. <laughs> As we look at something that is it's fascinating, isn't it? That, that God would do this. And, of course, we'll look at Pharaoh, how God is active in this. And yet, at the same time, he uses mankind in his own reasoning and in his own sin to do the sin that he does. And that's what the confession will bring forth here. Uh, this is about the unbeliever here. It's about a, a hardening that is brought to them, as you say there, Mick. While some people have uh, a softening that happens to them, others are hardened. And it should be noted that as you look at the, the confession here, you'll see Satan, and uh, that, the word Satan, and it should be noted, this is the first time that you see his name pop up in this confession as we enter this, this fifth chapter. And, and you'll see occasionally that Satan will be mentioned. Uh, 
There's not a specific chapter on Satan, but we see here how God uses him as an agent for the corruption and hardening of some, uh, and he uses his providential work, even though Satan is much opposed to God's providence. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want God's providential work to, to be done, but he is controlled by God in God governing. And that should give a sense of comfort to us, knowing that even Satan himself is absolutely controlled by God. You know, he's not just underneath God, you know, in competition. And, and some people take that view of Satan like he's almost as, as big as God is. He's, he's, a, he's a creature. He's created by God. Um, King Saul, I think, is, uh, is a real good example here when it, when it says that, uh, one, two, three, four, the fifth line down, sometimes he, God, also withdraws the gifts which they had. He not only withholds his grace, he withdraws the special gifts that maybe they are given. Uh, King Saul is a good example example of that because we know he became hardened, and, and we're going to go into Exodus here in a moment. And look at that. If you, if you remember Hebrews 6, where you get the ones who have been enlightened, they, they've heard the truth, you know, they're familiar with it, they've tasted the heavenly gift, and yet they fall away. Hebrews 6, we're, we're probably very familiar with that. There we have, they were around the gifts. They, were, they, they heard the word of God. They heard it preached and taught. They were around it. They saw even miraculous things happen. And yet they fell away. Uh, they, came, they had all the truth they ever needed for salvation, but they never had it. And then the, those gifts are taken away. They fall away. Um, fallen man is taught of the corruption of his own heart. You look in our Romans passage we just read. If they don't turn away from sin, they'll be hardened by it, and they will harden themselves. And Romans 1 is a, a great example of that. Now, when we speak of hardening, the example of Pharaoh definitely comes to mind. We're going to turn to uh, Exodus here. It's not contradictory to say that God hardens and Pharaoh hardens himself. God hardens him. Pharaoh hardens him. That is in the text as we will uh, look through here. Um, God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Let God's people go. Um, because Pharaoh is wicked, he refused to do what God had sent Moses for and to tell him that. And, and he became more of a practitioner of sin than he had before. And so you can see a hardening um, happening there. So let's turn back to Exodus Matter of fact, it would be really good if we kind of count how many times that we see that God hardens Pharaoh and also how Pharaoh hardens his own heart. By the way, I think it's ten times each. So we see a, a, a divine providence here and we see a balance that's, that's involved. 
God is doing the action, but yet at the same time, the one who commits the sin is not God. He does not tempt Pharaoh to do that, yet we see an ordaining of this. Rather incredible. If you start in chapter 4, verse uh, 21, the Lord said to Moses, and uh, the Lord is telling Moses, here's what's going to happen. When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But he says this, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's a rather difficult statement, isn't it? He tells him before all this even happens, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to harden his heart. So we're going to go to one extreme, first of all, and then we're going to come back and we'll look at the other extreme. And then we'll see God is a God of balance. And we always want to maintain balance. Exodus chapter 7 The Lord is speaking to Moses. Um, we'll pick it up, verse 1. See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. And here we go. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. There's a reason God's doing that. There's a lot of reasons. But I think the biggest reason is that God's glory is going to be seen in this. And today, here it is, all this time later, and people still talk about it. They still make movies about it. (laughs) We're still here studying it. And he says, I'm going to harden his heart. That I multiply my signs, my wonders. So, we pick it up. How many times is that so far? Two? Okay, now there's Pharaoh hardening his heart. But I'm going to skip those for a moment, come back. We've done two where God will harden. Uh, move to chapter 9. Verse 12, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This was the uh, the plague of boils that had happened. You have these plagues going on, and then uh, God reminds Moses, and hardening Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. This is dealing with the plague of locusts. Now it's coming up. For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son, of your grandson, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God is exposing who he is, and he's showing that he is the amazing God. He's the one doing the signs, and he's reminding Moses again, I have hardened his heart. Go to chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. I think that was dealing whenever the the locust had been there. Move to uh, verse 27. You have darkness over the land. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. After all this, after all these plagues, after everything that's going on, he will not listen to God. He will not let the people go. So we jump to chapter 11, verse 10. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. This is the last plague that's happened just before the Passover lamb. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Still not done. I think we said 10, right? Have you been counting? (laughs) Go to chapter 14. Getting uh, close to the time of the Red Sea here, aren't we? Pharaoh is in pursuit of the Israelites. Verse 4, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. I will be honored through Pharaoh... And all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. And they did so. So I'm going to harden it. I'm going to have him chase after you. Make you, you know, of course, go across that sea that's divided, the Red Sea. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 14. Here you have 600 chariots, all the chariots of Egypt with officers. And in verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Verse 17, As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through the chariots and his horsemen. So, all the way up through 14, 10, 11 chapters there where God says says that he will harden the hearts. Tells him in the present tense, I hardened his heart. That's really what, what's going on. So we can't miss that. We can't see that there's an act of sense here that this is God's decree that, that he does with this. So he commands through Moses that if Pharaoh would obey, then he would soften him in a sense. But really, in this sense, what we've been looking at, he's going to harden his heart. But Pharaoh does not obey, and he shows who he is. Pharaoh hardened his own heart as God hardened his heart, and we see he really leaves him in his sin of where he's already at. He just gets worse, more hardened. It's all ordained by God. Now let's go back and let's look at where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. I think that starts in chapter 6. Chapter 7, in chapter 6, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, multiply my signs and wonders. Then in chapter 7, this is where Aaron's rod becomes a serpent. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And in this sense, and in the Hebrew, it's, it's a hardening of himself here, even though God is hardening, yet Pharaoh also is hardening his heart. 
chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. He's stubborn. He has a hard heart, right? And so that would be in that sense there. Move to verse 22 of chapter 7. The magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. He's getting more and more evidence, and of course, of course he has his own magicians who look like they can do the same kind of thing, so you know, he's hardened his own heart here as it goes on. But as God shows more and more of his power that they cannot duplicate, he still hardens his heart. When it looks like, okay, that's enough. I get it now. Uh, verse 14, so they piled them in heaps. These are the frogs. And the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. He did not listen to them as the Lord had said. All of a sudden, it starts clearing up a little bit, and he goes right back to what he had been, only it's becoming worse. Um, verse 19 of chapter 8 says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. This is what God has done. We can't duplicate these kind of miracles. This had to come from God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, now this is in the sense of Pharaoh. Even though God is hardening his heart, Pharaoh is hardening his heart. Even more so. Verse 32 of chapter 8. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. And there it says very upfront, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. And he did not let the people go. Chapter 9. Verse 7, Pharaoh sent, behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. Of course, what happened to his livestock? The cattle, they all died. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 12, uh, verse 12 is where the Lord hardens his heart, specifically, you see that. See how they both work together here. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Would you have picked this subject <laughs> to go over? <laughs> I know we went through Exodus one time and it was uh, quite the trip, quite the journey, but um, I don't know, like, just this idea of how this topic of God giving over and doing things to people that on the out, outside looking in uh, seems to their their harm, you know, to their not their good. You know. So that that's why I asked that. Yeah, like the, like the more revelation one gets, the more responsible they are and they become even mm -hmm. worse. Of course, that's biblical. We, Romans 1, okay. we see that. Pharaoh is a, a really good example of that, exactly. That's also a lot of reason why people turn the Old Testament into myth, because they say, well, you know, God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't do that. And how little they have made God in their own minds, and that's idolatry. They, that's a 
that's a very small God because if he can't control what he wants to control, then what good is he as a God then? Right. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Um, is, by, by Pharaoh hardening his own heart, is like is God hardening his heart and Pharaoh hardening his heart in like complimenting each other or is Pharaoh hardening his heart in a reaction to God hardening? Yeah, that's a good question. And here's where we go. Since we've gone through all that, actually, in verse 15 of chapter 13, Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go. Yeah. And I think um, that is the last of we see of those ten. Okay, now an answer of that and an answer of looking at all of this, and I'll just give you a kind of a brief idea of what Gerstner said on this, and, okay. and I think the way that he worded it, I think, is, is good. Um, God hardened his heart by providing the occasion. Pharaoh hardened his heart by providing the cause in his own wicked acts. God provides the occasion. He ordains this, never tempting him to sin. It's his own sin that he does. And so yet God provides the occasion. He's already ordained. This is what's going to happen. No one gives a prophecy. But he's controlling that. But yet, here's the flip side. Pharaoh is the one who is doing his wicked acts. It's ordained by God, but it was brought about by the sinner. Sinners do evil. And it's impossible for God to, to do evil, to tempt them to do evil. God ordains the circumstance, and all he has to do is let them do what they do. In Romans 1, he turns it over. They're already, that's what they do. That is, that's who they are. They're sinners. He just lets them go. But as they go, as he shows himself and his truth of who he is, they become more and more hardened by it. Just like in Hebrews 6, people are around the Word of God. And we've experienced that in our own fellowship. Everybody has probably seen this, and you see it all throughout the New Testament, about the warnings where people look like they're true believers, and then sometimes we never know what happens, and they could stay there a whole time. Or they just totally walk away and make it very evident and say they don't believe in God anymore. Um, we, we've... You know, a lot of times we don't even know what's happening. We don't know the hearts of people. But what happens when one falls away, it's because they're showing who they really are and look at all of the times that they heard the Word of God where they, they were in on the prayers, had the advantage of having people pray for them. They were around Christians. They were in a protected environment. And they walk away. They fall away from that. Shows what their character was. And now they're held even more responsible than ever before. And they become very bitter. They, and they will, they will show, they will prove that in their, their actions, in their words, uh, against Christianity. And Yes, God hardens it because that's, he ordains that. He doesn't author the sin. He ordains it. And then we look in Romans 9 and we get a really good brief um, analysis of all the chapters that we covered just on those verses about the hardening. 
and God is taking that clay and he can do what he wants. And uh, the writer of, of, of that section there, uh, in Hebrew, uh, Romans 9, did I say Hebrews 9? Well, I hope I didn't. I'm going back from Hebrews. But in, in Romans, uh, Romans 9 and 10 and, and 11, we see that happen, especially in 9. Uh, Jacob and Esau. I think what you, what you were asking, Andrew, was, was that a joint operation? <laughs> like, was that in conjunction both Pharaoh's will and God's will yeah, I mean, and work? Yeah. yeah, I guess what, what I was trying to, to understand is just Pharaoh's responsibility as you know, being a sinner in, in, in this story because when it says that God hardens him, it sounds like an action. Like in, it sounds like I'm like forcing you to be hardened, and I'm, I'm trying. I'm I'm just trying to figure out how to uh, reconcile. Um, I think we have to be careful with the word force. Right, right. Um, God is providing the circumstance. Okay. He is ordaining it. You can look at Judas. You have the same yeah. thing there. And look at what he was around that whole time. And it was all God's plan. But yet Satan is the one who did that. But God provided that occasion for him. And that's a that's an act of sense mm-hmm. in that. Okay. Uh, but the thing is, all he really has to do is let them remain in what they do right. and who they are uh, and their nature. And um, he ordains, he brings that out, makes it possible, and brings that occasion there. Um, but God does not intervene in bringing him salvation. He could have, he didn't. And so therefore, it provided this the cause of Pharaoh then a, a doing the sin that he does. And the more that is given by the miracles by God, the more hardened he becomes every time it looks like, okay, it's all breaking now. You know, it's, at first it looked like now he, he, is, he is scared, you know, he's fearing God. And then it just kind of backs off and then goes right back to what he was before. There's his hardening. Yeah. But God has already provided that occasion of, uh, of that hardening. And, of course, he's doing it, but also as Pharaoh. And that's what our Westminster Confession well, is, is bringing forth. Right. That he's like more opportunity for that to be revealed, or the hardness of it is by the circumstances. And so there's a there's the hardening there, even in an in, in an active way. Seems passive. Yeah. Out. Yeah. I was going to say that I think that a good example uh, for God's sort of hand of restraint on people is uh, in the story of Joseph and his brothers. They see him coming from afar, and they say, "We're going to kill him." And um, God puts it in the heart of one of them, Reuben, to say, let's not be guilty of blood, just sell him. And I just think that I've always seen that as a really good example of the restraining part of God because when I get angry at someone, um, every time I don't kill someone, <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it, you've already done it in your heart, but God puts a restraining whether it be by the fear of the repercussions or, you know, I guess in, obviously in the, in the case of a believer, 
now we do have the freedom to not sin. Mm -hmm. We have that true, like, oh no, I love God. But in the case of an unbeliever, the law, the, yeah, so. God is, and and that's, and that's what God is doing right now. He's restraining. If God just let it go, man would destroy himself you know he 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 brings on restraining that it would keep from just going full tilt man man is so sinful we don't understand i i don't believe how sinful man can be even though he's totally depraved he's not as bad as he could be can be but um yeah and that has a lot to, to do with this. He, you know, he, he's still, as he hardens Pharaoh, he's keeping, you know, at the same time, um, he, he, his plan is being carried out in the way that he wants it to be. And he's, he is seen as a miraculous God. And it gets all over the world, all the nations that heard about this story um, right. as they approached the land, uh, the promised land. Uh, they were scared to death of these people because they knew it was God who did that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you believe there's mystery? Oh, to absolutely. So many things that, that God gives us truth. That's what he's promised to do. He gives us truth. And when he says this is true, and this is true, and we are to embrace what he says, understanding, full understanding doesn't always come with that. Exactly. Well, you're taking the stance that John Calvin himself said, and he leaves a lot of room for providence uh, and mystery inside that. Be careful, and we we were stating that last week, you have to be careful how far we go with any of these. Uh, And I think everything we're looking at tonight uh, what we just dealt with and what we're moving into, there's a lot of mystery. Now, where where ref, people of Reformed faith do, though, they want to go as far as they can, and then you know we want how do where do you stop? Well, sometimes we can go too far. Sometimes we go, okay, there's still some stuff there that is helpful to know. We want to know God <laughs> as much as we can, but truth is is a vital uh, importance to us here and. Um, we cannot get into the very mind of God on the depth of any of this. Well, yeah. I know when I was a yeah. Christian, I thought it was my duty to understand everything. I thought I was supposed to. And then I read Lloyd-Jones said one time, he said, this attitude can be sinful. Very often it come from curiosity or you think you have a right to demand that God explain everything and I thought, goodness, I was doing that and I didn't know I was doing that. But it's just, there's much mystery in the Bible. And I think Protestants, Evangelicals don't much like that. <laughs> yeah. They, well, they, they don't like having to believe two things that seem opposite, you know. Yeah, it seems contradictory what we were just talking about. Well, which is it? You know, which is it? Yeah. And, and it's both. It's yeah. plain. And then we say, well, that doesn't make sense in my mind. Well, that's our, our problem. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't have the mind of God. I mean, we, we, we want that to be conformed to the mind of Christ, but still yet we're on, on the side of... 
being in the flesh still yet. Part of humility too, stop where God stops. I mean, you know. We can never yeah. know God in the full. It's going to take eternity, and we still won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's a good point. That that always we want to keep that in mind. We we want to get the depth of it, and and whatever's truth, you know, we must believe it. At the same time, it is difficult. And we don't. And that's why I say whenever I started with this, is everybody okay? Uh, are we doing okay in this study? Because I don't want to lose people in it because it it can get rather cumbersome sometimes. And that's not really the purpose of this. Um, but as we look at it, and I, and I must admit, uh, I tend to like to go to an extreme sometimes. And, and when I do, uh, God draw me back because I like to go a little bit further than maybe I should. And I go to extremes. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite writers and uh, I have to say that sometimes he goes a little over um, and and that's said by good men of God <laughs> but but he had such a hunger for God I'm not knocking him but sometimes he painted himself into a corner and, and especially with one that we're coming up dealing with uh, sin <laughs> yeah. I remember a bumper sticker from years and years ago Oh boy. It used to enrage me. I used to want to stop the driver and say, I'm sure you're a Christian, but would you like to remove the bumper sticker you got? It said, um, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I think, oh, really? Whether you believe it or not has God settled it. <laughs> not our believing settles it. It's God Himself who's done it. Just believe it, right? right? But that doesn't say. Yeah, I've seen that. I just see it all the time. Apart. Well, I can only speak for myself. Just a minute, a second ago, you said that's why you always say, "Is everybody okay?" Because you don't want to overwhelm people. But to me, it's really helped me in my reading because I'll read something. Oh yeah, we talked about that. In, when we were studying the confession or when we were studying the pathology statement or something. And, so, and then it helps me to understand that a little bit more. So. Well, good. That's one of the purposes why we yeah. get together. And uh, as often as we do, it's, it, this should refresh our, our memories. Because and, and, how often do you cover all parts of the Bible? You know, there's certain things that haven't been there for years. And, but it should help and enhance our own study and our reading and our own, really our relationship with Christ. That's really what it's about. It's not head knowledge, but it's knowing God. Um, You've got to have head knowledge. You've got to renew the mind, but it's really focusing on Him. What this does to me is it expands my thoughts on how much bigger God is than my ways. And, of course, I think there's a scripture dealing with that, right? <laughs> um. Well, let's go to the the next one there, uh, which would be the the seventh one, seventh section. As the providence of God in general reaches to all creatures, so in a more special manner it takes care of His church and governs all things to the good of His church. Uh, what the divines of the confession here are dealing with here is really the focus comes down to, of course, Christ, but it's His church. His providence ultimately is for His people, for His, his body. 
even though he he works in it in so many different ways, and, he, and it's all people, as the confession says. But you consider how much struggle the church has gone through, the persecutions, the heresies, all the troubles, different kinds, and we're operating in the realm of faith right now. We talked about live by faith and not by sight. Uh, Sunday out of Corinthians there. Uh, it's not necessarily a realm of experience, even though that is part of it. We do experience, we do live it out, but we have to emphasize faith in the sense of believing in, in this realm of faith, um, of all his providential care that he has, the, the biggest focus here is to his people. That's an amazing thing as he's working out this providence. In course, Romans 8, 28, you mentioned Joseph and, and, we, and, and his brothers. What a story of providence. And that's probably one of the best examples there is of providence, although there are stories after stories. And, of course, at the end of it, as in Genesis uh, 50 there, uh, you meant evil, but God meant it for good, which is an equivalent in the New Testament as Romans 8. 28. How often do we go there? It's almost like a Sunday or a Tuesday night and we don't touch on that. And I'm always using that passage, but it, it brings me to a providential God who's going to bring things out. But he, but he cares for his people. Uh, the creation of, of the universe is for the church. You know, it's, it's for God's glory, but then we have to see what is all this about? Is that he's bringing his people to the image of Christ. Those who love God, right? All right. Um, let's go to the next chapter. By the way, I had a passage on that, but uh, I'm going to roll on here. Uh, that was First Timothy 4.10 is, is pretty good for that. Um, yes? On the previous screen that you had up there, can you go back to that? And I go up a little bit. Or down a little bit, I mean, I'm sorry. Number seven or in six? Yeah, I want to see the, the A to the Q&A. Oh. And it was preserving and governing. Okay, that's yeah, this would be like the, the catechism questions right. to that. What are God's works of providence? God's yeah. works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. There's some scripture that deals with it. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. And that kind of leads us into this, this next one then, which is the fall, sin, punishment. It's chapter 6 of Westminster and... Uh, of uh, Zach Whitson's, it's number seven. Um, the fallenness of man doesn't appear until the sixth chapter. <laughs> and actually, it could have been done a lot earlier, probably around chapter three in that sense, but here yeah, we right have chapter creation. six. Yeah. <laughs> right. God decreed to permit the sin. God let Pharaoh, okay, going off of what we just talked about, and then we'll read this in a moment. God let Pharaoh continue to do as he did. God had foreordained the circumstance. God did not change him, though. 
that's the whole sense. He does change others. Others he doesn't change. He just, the ones he changed, he makes them over again. He, he makes them new creations, right? He regenerates them. That's the word I like best. We were regenerated. With Pharaoh and the unbelieving world, God really, I mean, he hardens their heart, but in a sense, he really does nothing as in they're already in their sin. It's not that he's doing nothing. You know, he's ordaining this, but there's no change in them is what I'm talking about. There's, never, there's not a change in the unbeliever as far as a new creation. They just remain in their sin and they expose it as time goes on. They just do what they do naturally. Just natural. And that's what this is going to be uh, opening up to us. I think it will help. Let's uh, go ahead and read this and we'll be looking through a few scriptures dealing with it. Although God created man upright and perfect, gave him a righteous law which secured life for him while he kept it, and although God warned him that he would die if he broke it, yet man did not live long in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, seduced Adam by her, and he, without any compulsion, willfully transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. And this act God, according to his wise and holy counsel, was pleased to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. You get the word permit, and then you also see having purpose to order it. Now that's a rather difficult statement. Section in the Confession doesn't explain how the fall happened. It doesn't explain how when you have a perfect people in a perfect environment done by everything made perfect by God, right? Everything was good. How is that where he makes everything perfect at the same time he makes them so that they could accept the temptation of Satan. That's not perfection. Though. What's that? Like. Well, everything that he made. We, we go back to good. Genesis. Like, everything I, I was good. I want to make a distinction because I feel like good and perfect are two opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, there's good people and then there's God who's perfect. Yeah, uh, I think what they're saying whenever they use the word how did they word that, right? Um, go back here. He created a, a, upright. upright and perfect, right? There's no sin. Everything yeah, is righteous. On spot. On spot. And that is what they would mean there. Um, yeah. Now, we're not told how, you know, the whys, the hows, which is, you know, that's one of the most unanswered questions of theology. Here's where the mystery is again. Um, they had no flaws. I mean, there was no sin. They were created in the way that, you know, the very image of God, of course, it comes tainted by sin. Satan himself. Right. Satan was a righteous creature, a, a, a perfect creature in that sense. That's, that would be the, the term that they, they used there at that time. Uh, he did make them like this, though. The ability to not sin. I mean... Um, 
an, an ability so that they could sin or an ability where they don't have to sin. There is free will. That was pure free will. After sin, free will doesn't come into play as far as salvation is concerned, as far as regeneration. They had that at that time. And when you have death to man because of his sin, he can't choose God any longer on his own. So what was there to respond to the temptation from Satan? And that's where you get into some trouble. What was there to respond to the temptation? And many theologians try to get an answer, and that's where Jonathan Edwards goes. And uh, I listened to uh, Gerstner back about 10 years ago from a series that he did uh, on, and Edwards is like his favorite theologian. I mean, he right. wrote much, he read much of Edwards, and uh, Edwards makes it more confusing than ever. <laughs> and that's where I, uh, he said that's where Jonathan Edwards backed himself into a corner um, where it talks about what's there to respond to the temptation. Uh, it takes a lot of thinking, and, and really there's no explanation of it. Uh, there's no explanation of it in scriptures no explanation right here of how sin came into the world Satan did tempt our first parents we know that uh, sin had originated with Satan who was created good and, and right uh, temptation came from him then to Eve and Adam um, why and how the response there well it's quite the puzzle isn't it people have tried to figure that out for centuries and uh, centuries they will continue but Satan tempted God permitted God permitted but it was not mere permission you so, get why I say mere permission you brought up Jonathan yeah. Edwards could you wrap in a nutshell what, what his thought was on well he's trying to explain and I, I really can't oh. uh, it goes on uh, Gerstner had several um, CDs on what Edwards was doing with that. And it, it's hard to wrap your mind around it because Edwards is trying to get into something where we really can't go. Uh, why? What is there in Adam and Eve besides God putting there the ability to sin, not to sin? And, of course, is there grace involved? Was there not grace? Was, was, was there... Uh, did God make him sin? You get into things, even though God ordains him to sin, and you almost get into where God is tempting him, although Edwards would not believe that. There's a lot of explanations wow. that come around that. It, it's, it's really, it, it confused me at, the more that I listened to it. <laughs> you know, and it, it's like he's trying to explain where, where this came from in their own way. Did God hold back grace? from them so he didn't, we don't have he didn't, an answer he didn't, on that was 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 edward's uh thoughts on it more just that like just sort of ponderings and and inquiries as to what how it could be and he never really answered it. well well he he thought he did oh. but but the thing is is we don't have a biblical answer he, he is probably the greatest thinker 
that this nation has ever known. Mm -hmm. the, the trouble is, whenever we get into thinking sometimes, even trying to use scripture and we go beyond what we're told, that, and that's where Janice was just talking about, we now have gotten outside what he's already told us even though we are to think and ponder and dwell on it. That's what he did. He would go out in the woods and do that, see God's creation. And he came up with some awesome, tremendous thoughts. I love to read him. Uh, and no no knock on him here, but he was uh, probably getting into an area where you, it's, it's a puzzle. It's, it's a, I think that's where we have to say, this is mystery. We can go as far as we can go here. God orders it. I think that's going pretty deep when we say that because most of the Christian realm today would get very angry at us that God would order that. Well, if he didn't order it, then he's not in control. If he's not in control, he'd say, where did that come from? You know, oh, he's surprised that sin came into the world. I've got to do something now. And that means God's a lot less than what we, what we thought. He's in total sovereign control. He, uh, elsewise, he would not allow it to happen. This book, we just wouldn't have the beauty of what he's done this far. We wouldn't need it. Wouldn't need a savior for our sin, would we? Right. We would not know grace. We would not know mercy. We would not know love. I mean, you can go on and on. We can see there are many things why God would permit this, and at the same time, even ordain it. And also, the race that God makes for Himself is a race that's way higher than Adam could have ever been because we have been bought by Christ himself. Adam would not have that. The angels don't have that. That's right. Yeah, that's what I meant like earlier. It wasn't perfect because there's a better... Uh, You're thinking in the heavenly, yeah, yeah. glorious I, sense. I have the whole story, yeah. so I'm going, well, there's a better covenant, you know, sort of like in Hebrews. There's a better, or wherever we but I think a lot of people say they'll use the word innocence. They were in the state mm -hmm. of innocence. Uh, they were good. They were made good. They were, they were made you know, the best that God could. You know. So, yeah, um, it, it's, a, it's a tough area. Um, Adam was able to stand. He was also able to fall. Uh, he could have not chosen to eat of the tree. God decreed that he would sin. Didn't author it. He decreed that he would sin. But God never pushed him. God never, God never pushes anybody. He just lets them to their own possibilities. Look at the circumstance that he gave them. He, he could have said, hey, here's the tree of life. And it's all for you. Huh? Well, that probably plays a lot of it. Um, Stick your hand in that cookie. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Every time. What are they going to do? God just leaves him and Eve to their own possibilities. They choose to sin. And Westminster uses the word permit many, many times. 
But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have control here over this or the world or whatever. God lets man choose to do his own thing, but it's always in God's circumstances. And it's going to fit his plan perfectly. Um, Number two... Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them. For from this, death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. This is Reformed theology. This is talking about the depravity of man. Man needs to know how sinful he is. They disobeyed, and from their original righteousness, it says here, and communion with God, they became dead in their sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Dead in sin, not able to respond to the things of God any longer. Um... And here's where the Roman Catholics veer off. And once you go away from this particular doctrine, if you don't have the understanding of the depravity of man and how bad man really is, you can say, well, why? It doesn't seem that God is very fair then. If people would understand, nobody deserves anything but hell. All should be dead in sin forever. You know, if you just take it in that way, but of course God has a plan in this, but the Roman Catholics taught that God gave to Adam and Eve an original righteousness, but it's a supernatural endowment. It's a righteousness that actually is a special additional righteousness rather than just being without sin. There was a special additional righteousness And so the fall affects human beings in Roman Catholic theology, but in a very definite way. And, of course, they believed that, but what they believed is that it was really the special righteousness is really what they lost. And even though it was a bad thing that happened, that sin enters into the human realm, it was not such a disastrous effect upon man and creation. It was not a, a disastrous event as Protestant, as Reformed theology presents it. Um, the view was that they had was that the nature of man was relatively unaffected. His mind really wasn't affected in Roman Catholic theology. The will was not affected, therefore free will. Adam had free will, we have free will. Well, Arminians believe the same thing today. Yeah, they say we have free will to choose God. Um, Problem with that, what happened at the fall? Everybody became dead in sin. If we don't have that theology, then we have the same choice that Adam and Eve had, and so therefore what they did doesn't really affect what we do, which comes into a major problem because Romans chapter 5 gives us the New Testament view of what the Old Testament 
was dealing with in many passages. Romans 5, verse 12, after he's already explained how evil and wicked man is, and he says in verse 6 he's helpless and he's ungodly, and that he says in verse 8 that they're sinners, and in verse 10, enemies. Enemies, sinners that are ungodly and helpless. They're dead and their trespasses. That's pretty bad. That's really, really bad. That's very, very <laughs> evil and wicked. That's how bad man... And he can't come and say, I think I'll choose God now. He cannot do that. Here's what happened. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, there's a whole text that we can take and go all the way through the rest of the chapter. That one verse right there is saying, not only did it happen to Adam and Eve, but it also happens to everybody because of that sin. And uh, now you get into this idea of the, did you see where the, the text says, holy, defiled, holy, defiled. If you take section 2 and section 4, we're in section 2 right now, if you take those together, you come up with what we know in Reformed theology as the total depravity. Now, we're going to explain total here in a moment. Um, maybe there are other words that could be better. Um, they used a word that worked at that time. Um, sometimes people think that man is as bad as he can be then. And that's not what we're saying when we say total. Inability. What's that? Inability. Um, that's the substitute word that I think MacArthur put in for it. Yeah, I think, and does he not use the word radical? R.C. uses radical. He uses radical. Yeah, I don't think um, it's radical. It's uh, total inability. Total inability. Yeah. The inability to, 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 to choose God. And that's the idea. Because if it's if it's total, that means there's nothing good in man whatsoever, right. in any kind of man. That's biblical. And, and, and spiritually, that's the case. When you run into chapter 6 here, where we're dealing with, then chapter 16, and it's dealing with good works, and not just necessarily good works of believers. An unbeliever can do good works. They can do things. Matter of fact, they, they help serve us. God can use them to do that. They can, they can be very good at doing, um, whether it be medical, whether it be laws, uh, you think of the professions that they do, right? They can be very good at baseball and not be a believer, right? Um, or you have many believers that are good at that too. But what he's saying that they're, we're talking about even doing good things for people, you know, being nice to people in that sense. Uh, so therefore, sometimes when, when we use the word total, it can be a contradiction. I don't think to us we understand it as a contradiction. But the word radical there, uh, in a sense, I think it means it touches every part of our lives. Remember the Roman Catholic? As far as the emotions, yeah, it did touch. But the intellect, not necessarily. Or your will, no. Um, so they didn't believe in that kind of wholly defiled or totally depraved. There's something good there in our thinking 
as far as spiritual concerns can be. Um, On that note, since we're talking, it's not just the passion. Since we're talking about it, uh, Jesus' description of man. Uh, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your Uh children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who? Good text there. There's somebody who's evil who still did some good things. And so therefore, there's no contradiction in the confession or scripture because evil people can do good deeds. So they're not totally depraved in that sense, but what did it affect them? Well, spiritually, and and matter of fact, it affected our minds, our thinking, when it hit um, Adam and Eve. They didn't have the mind like they'd had before. Um, They didn't have the... Uh, emotions, uh, the will. I mean, everything that you can think of, every aspect of man was affected. And of course, we, we know uh, nature was affected. Everything was affected. Holy defiled. And this comes upon all. And that's why uh, we look at uh, Romans 5 and we say, ah, oh, the death uh, there of man. That's what happened. Um, Alan, you were talking earlier about God restraining. He, he keeps it from being total depravity and, and, and being the worst that, that we could possibly be. And, and Calvin in his institute said, like along the same lines that you were talking about, he said, God's grace restrains when it does not cleanse. The cleansing, we understand, right? He comes in and cleanses, uh, regenerates some people. But at the same time, even though it, it's not a, a cleansing grace, it's still a restraining grace that he even puts on people. Uh, that's pretty gracious there in itself, isn't it? Um, he keeps evil from its full expression. So that's why total depravity could be misunderstood uh, by many. Um, but God, in his restraining grace, keeps people from their total sin. But... Uh, and, and every sinner is not equally as depraved in the sense of their actions. Nature-wise, they're all depraved in the same sense, but uh, we're not as depraved as other sinners could be, right? Some do more actions than others. One thinks about murder in his heart, and another one carries it out, and that, that's even worse. Somebody could say, well, hey, listen, if I've already thought about killing somebody, I might as well do it because in God's eyes, it's just as bad. No, no, no. <laughs> still yet, that, that still is sin, but to carry it out is even even worse. So if total depravity was total, it, if sin was never restrained, then could anything exist? Now, the dead person, a corpse is a corpse, Right? Uh, it is dead. Uh, the soul is dead. It, it's, it's, it's a stench. It's stinking. It's foul. Men are dead. And I wish that people could understand that whenever they want to think that you can just choose God as being a dead man. Now, um, they use the word root. We're going to come to the close here but you see number three up there they being the root that's Adam and Eve and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind this is uh, another doctrine that makes people mad because they send 
that shouldn't, that's not fair that I be born a sinner. I didn't do that sin. <laughs> and the answer is found right here. There are a root and Romans 5, 12 through 19 is a great text there. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. First Adam, Adam, who sins. Second Adam being Christ. And we are, uh, we fall under his headship. At one time we were under the headship of Adam. And that's dealing with federal headship. Um, there's, there's another one that's interesting though. Um, and it's realism. You familiar with realism and federal headship? Okay, realism, but the Westminster Confession actually makes room for both of these thoughts. You can say, well, what are you talking about now? Well, how is it that God can call us sinners when we didn't sin, and we see it it's because of our parents' sin, and you look in Romans 5.12, you can think, okay, if you think of a root, and this is why the Confession, I think, actually favors both of these views as federal headship and also root. You say, how's that? Well, the relationship of Adam's sin to the sin of the rest of mankind. That's what we're talking about. Think of a tree. Have a root. Tree with branches, leaves. The root is Adam and Eve. This is one tree. There are many branches. The smallest leaf is a part of the tree, just like Adam and Eve were a part of the tree. That's an organic relationship. Okay, We are found in them. It's, it's realism. You, you've heard the thought of we were there when they sinned. Now, that's a thought. I don't take realism too far, but I think what they're saying here, there is an extent that we can take it. The realists believe that there was real existence. Somehow, you've also heard that we were at the cross when Christ died. We were in, you know, in Him, in His, in His thought, in His plan, and that kind of thing. Even though we hadn't been born yet, in a sense, that that would be considered an, an idea of an existence. There, uh, root and realism is, is connected. There, uh, the root realism, realist. Really what they're trying to do is solve the problem of the question that people have when they say, okay, they sinned, but I didn't, so therefore, how can it be my fault? And you've heard people say that. They don't want to be identified with Adam and Eve. Well, it's like passing down a genetic trait. You know, just like... Exactly. Well, that's, that's the idea here. That's what this realism would be. We are one in this. Now, I'm not trying to advance this, but I'm saying, as, as I've heard some reformers actually, you know, use this realism, I think you'll, most of the time you'll see the, the federal headship, but realism says that Adam and Eve are a part of me. I'm, I'm in that, you know, it's kind of like the body of Christ. We're, we're connected to them. Um, so that's, that's used in this confession. We go back to the root and it's passed on like genes are. So I can see in that sense how that can be. So there's a picture. So they say they being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind. And then you get the other federal headship which is the guilt of this sin was imputed and their corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. So the guilt of sin is imputed. I've yes. also heard it explained that they 
Adam and Eve were perfect representatives of all mankind. And you could have replaced Adam with any other man that ever lived, and Eve with any other woman that ever lived. And they still, they would have done what Adam and Eve did. That, and that's called representative or federal headship, which is what I've always kind of leaned to, but I can see the idea of the tree, but I, I, this, th this idea here is they were representatives of us. When you, uh, when you vote, you, you vote in a, in a republic, right? You vote for people that are going to represent what your thoughts are, hopefully, right? You want them to do what you think is right, you know, in a, in a conservative manner. I think we're probably all conservatives here, that I would think. <laughs> and in that sense, we would want them to, to do conservative things. And so this is what this is. They are representatives of us. And I think this is probably a, a really good picture. It's a legal language, and federal, though, means headship. We have an appointed headship in the Garden of Eden. And what happened there with our representatives is what is imputed to us. You say, that's not fair. Well, the thing is, what happens when our representative that we voted for who made promises and they go and do something exactly opposite of what they promised. Well, that's the argument, though, that we did not pick Adam and Eve. Right. Because that was that would be in the past. That, that would be like uh, saying, you, you can't vote for, for... I didn't put Adam and Eve there, so they have no say for what who I am, you know. Well, and that's what their answer is going to yeah. be. And Adam and Eve's not a true story anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, my, just, you start chipping away at scripture. So, yeah. And that's and that's why Romans five twelve is so valuable to us. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. That's where death happened. There wasn't some kind of death before all this happened. Animals weren't dying before this or anything. Nothing died. Everything was life. Death. This is where it started, right here at, at sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so it, we... What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just tack that on at the end. It's like, what? <laughs> well... What do we have here? We're dealing with we we sin because we are what sinners, and it's dealing with now. You know, it's our nature. This was imputed to us. So it, confession. Uh, I think the confession here takes this representative view here to uh, it definitely offends people. You know, it, it sure does. Uh, but Christ is our representative, and that's how we answer this. Because, oh, okay, if he's not our representative, and 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear on the first Adam and the second Adam. Christ is our representative now. And see, their problem is, is they don't understand the fall. They don't understand how bad and evil and wicked they are. Even though Adam and Eve did it, this is how God elected for this to be done. And, um, of course, you think of holy inclined to evil. R.C. Sproul says section 4, and we're going to get out of this. He says about section 4, holy inclined to evil. He says this section, and when R.C. Sproul says something, it's good to listen. If 
I, if we were to choose one statement in the Westminster Confession that crystallizes the characteristics of historic Reformation theology, it would be this one. And it's dealing with being utterly indisposed to virtue. Wholly inclined to all evil. As far, virtue as far as God kind of virtue. Um, we're sinners before we actually sin. We're born in sin. You can go to Psalm 51. It speaks about that. You go to Romans 3. We have all these texts that we should be going to here. I'm closing it out here. But, uh, but from that nature of sin comes then also our actual sin. So we repeat the actual sin that our parents did, that Adam and Eve did. Not only are we guilty because of their sin, we're guilty because of their sin. They are our representatives. But we're guilty because of our own sin. So it's all covered. We're sinners because of our parents' sin, though. G.K. Chesterton said that if there's one Christian doctrine that is actually proved, it is this one. Of course, we can go in our newspapers and look at that, can't yeah. we? Man just tells how bad he is constantly. Turn on the TV, turn on the news. And he also was asked this, what's wrong with the world? Back in the 1800s, they had problems in the world. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with it? Chesterton said, I am. <laughs> Janice, he had it. <laughs> That's good. Number five, the sin of the Christian. Is what we do actually sin? We're Christians now. We're new creations. Do we really? Absolutely. Our sin is really sin. And we must view it as sin. And it's not less than because we are now Christians. And of course, Romans 7 talks about the battle that we have. Uh, 1 John 1 8, 9 talks about confessing our sins. I've talked to people who say we're Christians now and we don't ever sin. And uh, Bob George uh, had several books out dealing with grace. He had a book called uh, something, I think it was, it was dealing with grace. What kind of grace? He says, we don't sin. It's, it, it's we have, there's, there's B.C. and there's A.D. And after the, you know, after the cross, uh, sin has all been taken away. Then why do we need grace? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listen. We went way over time. I've been doing it badly here lately, but thank you guys. Um, we covered a lot of material. I didn't think it'd take this long, but um, if you get this down right, everything else starts flowing right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening, and thank you for these deep, precious truths, and help us where we need understanding, clarified. At the same time, we don't want to take this mystery too far in the sense that we have abused what you've given us and stretched it out, but yet it should make us think and ponder and dwell upon the nature of who you are and our nature. We should know you better, and then as a result of that, we know ourselves, and we know that we are people with hope through the person of Christ as we've been looking at uh, this nature of sin. Thank you for that tremendous hope the good news, the gospel. Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you.
Until next time.